welcome to the Matrix Law podcast with me, Richard Hermer, Philippa Kaufman, and Murray Hunt. This is the third pod and the second one focusing specifically on the international response to the crisis, examining how the rule of law and human rights are holding up in the face of public emergencies. For those that tuned in last week, you would have heard from extraordinary human rights lawyers in Hungary, Israel, and Hong Kong describe the particular challenges that they are facing and how autocratic regimes are using the crisis as an opportunity to consolidate power, a particularly poignant theme in a week that President Trump purported to possess powers over the states that would have made King George III blush. This week, we're staying on the international theme, but turning from examining the impact on wealthy, albeit troubled nations, to those towards the bottom end of the economic scale, or at least those in which a significant proportion of populations live in extreme poverty and destitute. Shortly, we'll be talking to the Open Society Foundation's Africa director, Mafoni Wanyeki, about the impact not only in our home country of Kenya, but across the African continent. Then we'll be chatting to Colin Gonzalez, one of India's most prominent human rights lawyers, on the challenges thrown up or amplified by the state's response to the virus. But before turning to our guests, I want to begin by discussing the decision this week of Donald Trump to defend the World Health Organization made during the course of an international pandemic. I think I'm less interested in the funding decision itself, but more what it says about what many will see as the failure of our post-war institutions, international institutions, to take a prominent role in coordinating the crisis. Indeed, one of the features of the last few weeks appears to be a real retreat by governments to uh, behind their own national borders and the pulling up of metaphorical drawbridges. Particularly important might be thought to human rights lawyers, international human rights lawyers, whose whole framework on which we relied on came out of the push post-1945 to create great international institutions. Murray, what's your reflection on what we've been seeing this week, what the move by Trump reflects in terms of international responses and international coordination? Yes, I think it's very concerning and alarming. I think there are clearly some legitimate questions that need to be asked about the World Health Organization, as there are legitimate questions to be asked about all our institutions and how they're coping with this unprecedented global emergency. Um, but this is clearly, seems to me, not the time to suspend funding to such a crucial institution. Um, and it does, I think, show the, the danger at a moment like this of elevating nationalism and nation-first political thinking over multilateralism. Because I think that um, COVID-19 clearly demonstrates not only our uh, interconnectedness, but our mutual dependence. And it's only international cooperation and coordination which are going to, first of all, beat the virus, and then secondly, mitigate all the economic consequences that are flowing from the measures which are necessary to, to beat the virus. And that means that we really do need to go back to basics in relation to our international legal frameworks. We need to go back to why we have international law. Uh, we need to support the multilateral institutions that are at the heart of trying to defeat the virus globally, like the World Health Organization. And it also means we need to mobilize those international organizations which are capable of mitigating the economic catastrophe that may otherwise follow. So the IMF, the World Bank, the G20. And I think above all, the risk of this most recent example of this nation first thinking um, is that it's counterproductive. 
Uh, and we may find that, in fact, we're storing up a second wave, possibly a third wave um, of the virus uh, if we don't internationally cooperate in such a way that means it can actually be eliminated globally. Yeah, well, I mean, unsurprisingly, I, I completely agree with everything that Murray has said. It is impossible to see how, without full international cooperation, we're going to do two things that we're going to need to do. Firstly, get the virus under control. Because if we don't cooperate internationally, we will ramp it down in one part of the world, fail to do so in another part of the world, and it will simply come back to the part of the world that, that, that that's managed to rid itself of it. Uh, and secondly, um, how on earth we are going to deal with the economic consequences of this, which looks like uh, it could be... Uh, as bad as anything in the last 100 years on a worldwide level. And without that kind of cooperation, uh, the repercussions, not just economically, but uh, in terms of, of social unrest, collapse, and uh, an increase in, in incredibly dangerous conditions um, in terms of conflict, uh, it, it, it's, it just seems almost inevitable. And what's so tragic about all of this is, is however much we might criticise the United States in its international policies in the past, it has been such a key player on the international scene in terms of supporting the UN and other institutions that established themselves or were established um, after the horrors of the Second World War. Uh, as an example, I was just looking at how much um, the US paid to the WHO before its decision to defund yesterday. It paid $500 million a year, of which only $115 million was mandatory. So it was the highest funder, it was the biggest funder, and most of that went over and above what it was required to do. You look at the role it played in relation to Ebola, and you contrast it now with the, um, the narrow focus of Trump on, on himself and, uh, secondly, his own country's interests. And then you ask, why is it all happening? And while it is part of the same trajectory that Trump has taken in relation to um, international institutions, what actually triggered this is, is simply his need to respond to the criticism on the domestic front of his failures to deal with the crisis in America. So this is him simply lashing out at the first thing uh, that he can see to try and detract attention. Although it's consistent with what we've seen over the last two years, which is a move away from American leadership internationally. There might be some parts that are good. You know, I have a bookshelf full of wealth, um, Chomsky, but there are large parts for those of us who are interested in international law and international coordination that recognise that without a central role for the United States because of its power, um, things look very grim. And I, I mean, I've been reflecting from this, really, the difference from an international law perspective of the outlook now. I mean, when I started becoming interested in international law, we had Pinochet... Um, being held on house arrest here. We had moved towards an international criminal court. We had real momentum towards international standards on environmental law. And not only is that all gone, but we now have, you know, the president of the United States undermining the great international institutions, 
the Security Council playing virtually no role in this, even institutions like the EU playing a backseat role to national governments. Um, and it's just, it's just a wasteland when one looks ahead as to um, the role that international law and international corpora- corporation may play at the very time we need it most. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly in the face of China's rising Yes, Philip is absolutely right, I think, to mention China in, in, in this context, because um, what, what this demonstrates really is the importance of having a, a grown up and mature approach to how we constructively engage with China. Um, China obviously poses um, all sorts of challenges to uh, human rights lawyers and people interested in the rule of law. Um, but we the reality is that this global health emergency is not going to be solved without China. Um, and we've actually got to find a way of constructively engaging China in the international cooperation that's going to be required in the same ways we've got to engage them uh, in all the uh, international legal framework discussions and multilateral institution discussions that are ongoing about everything else. But from a human rights perspective, Murray, I mean, that, there's a terrifying element to that, which is the terrifying element to the idea that the vacuum created by retreat from by the United States is going to be filled by a country who the last... 18 months has been creating concentration camps for over a million uh, Uyghur Muslims, who we all know has zero regard to what we would identify as core human rights. And yet, I think you're right. I mean, they are increasingly playing a leadership role and filling a vacuum. I think that's right. The risk, the risk of the retreat and, and the vacuum, as, as you and Philip have, have pointed out, um, is that that vacuum is filled by China. Um, and one of the people I think who's been speaking the most sense on this subject this week is uh, former Foreign Secretary William Hague, um, who has advocated um, a, a very pragmatic approach to constructive engagement with China on all these things. And I think it, I think that's absolutely right. It's a necessity. We'll leave that discussion there, maybe one we'll come back to in future podcasts, and uh, turn now to our guests. Whilst international cooperation might be receding on the governmental level, human rights activists are determined to keep the internationalist spirit alive, And that's why we on this podcast have been focusing on the threat posed by public emergencies to civil rights, to civil rights, not just in the United Kingdom, but across the globe. One important issue is the intersection between responses to COVID in countries with both authoritarian instincts, but also extreme levels of poverty and attendant poor levels of access to healthcare, decent housing and sanitation. And joining us to discuss this is Dr. Mathoni Wanyeki, who is the African Director of the Open Societies Foundation, having had an illustrious career in international human rights, including as the former executive director of the Kenyan Human Rights Commission. And although now based in Nairobi, Muthoni is joining us from London, which he's been unable to leave since lockdown. Muthoni, thank you very much for joining us. Before we look at legal uh, aspects of what's going on both in Kenya and then across the continent, could you just give a description of what the kind of the public health reaction has been, firstly in Kenya, then again uh, across the nations? Well, people may not be aware, but actually as one of the sort of longer term impacts of the Ebola crisis in West Africa was that uh, the formation of an intergovernmental body, the African CDC, Centers for Disease Controls, 
they've been working closely with the WHO since January, and they had actually done quite a bit of preparatory work on what public health care professionals needed to do in Africa. Um, so the public health aspects, um, doctors that had been prepared, surveillance institutions had been prepared. Um, so the public health aspects purely, um, there was quite a bit of work that was done to start getting Africa ready as a whole. What about governmental measures in respect of curfews, social distancing, the uh, measures taken by government that have an impact on individual liberties? Well, those all sort of came into effect across the continent at sort of the same time, maybe a week after the sort of big moves in the UK and the States. Um, on the surface of things, they are seem similar, they seem to make sense. Um, so, you know, lots of urging around wash your hands, social distancing, um, beginning to check incoming travelers because the first cases that were reported were mainly imported cases. Um, but of course, arriving in contexts like African contexts, um, where the majority of people live in informal settlements, don't have access to clean pipe water, um, you know, live on top of one another. Um, very quickly, uh, the response was, how do you expect us to follow these guidelines? Yeah. Um, I mean, what does it, I mean, what's it mean in reality, social distancing, if you are living, I mean, in major slums or uh, outside of um, cities, I mean, what, what does that mean, both in terms of the density of population, but also access to healthcare, levels of sanitation? Well, I mean, I think we saw an extraordinary response by groups that do community-based sort of service provision um, in terms of very quickly picking up on lack of access to clean pipe water. Um, the social distancing um, requirements were much harder. I don't think a solution has really been found for informal settlements. Um, people are naturally very resistant to the idea of staying home. They're like, who are, you, who are you talking about? We earn our living on a sort of daily basis. If you're asking us to choose between, you know, dying of hunger or dying of, of, of this virus, um, which is not as tangible as sort of the daily needs of, of hunger. So um, with that sort of being the case, um, many of the sort of curfews, lockdowns, et cetera, initially were responded to with, as usual, extreme and disproportionate use of force. I think we all saw the sort of terrible scenes from Kenya to Uganda to Nigeria to South Africa of police and military sort of pummeling people into submission. Um, some apologies came after. Um, but the social distancing thing has not really been sorted out. Um, I think in terms of sort of people's access to food and food supplies, some sort of reasonable accommodation has been found in terms of spreading out markets, fumigation, that sort of thing. Um, but not people's daily living conditions. I mean, you mentioned the scenes of excessive police and army violence in a kind of a range of countries. What's been the response of civil society to that in any role that the courts have been able to play or lawyers have been able to play in, in terms of 
trying to address those, the risks of further excessive violence or seeking any form of accountability for it. People swung into action very fast. There were numerous litigations, constitutional litigations, even, even in situations where courts are essentially closed and either functioning once a day or in countries where they have the infrastructure functioning online. Many constitutional applications in Kenya, in Zimbabwe, I mean, in Zimbabwe, there have probably been about five constitutional applications around use of force um, and the meaning and successful ones in terms of. Have there, have there been any constitutional applications in relation to the measures imposing social distancing or lockdowns themselves, or it's been solely directed towards the police's response in trying to enforce? Well, initially, it was what people are used to, police responding to police excesses. But I think people have, you know, as people have begun to think through, as civil society, academics, intellectuals have begun to think through, how how do we adapt these measures to be meaningful for us? We've seen applications that sort of address the long term around you know, how do you impose states of emergency as in Ethiopia um, without consultation? Um, when will the states of emergency end? Um, has there been appropriate parliamentary oversight? Has there been public participation and consultation? Um, and maybe I'm using Ethiopia unfairly because actually even just yesterday, Abi, the prime minister, had convened his AG, members of his legal advisory council, um, all kinds of experts to sort of talk about what kind of constitutional protections there need to be around the state of emergency and around the measures taken. So actually, that's a better example. But in other countries, yes. Um, some people are trying to think through legal responses around right to health and what that means, right to water and what that means. But the law in those cases, I mean, as you know, they're, it's harder to litigate and the law is sort of a, a bit of a blunt instrument. Um, what's needed is real thoughtful policy responses and the gathering together of our best minds around how to make this work in a policy practice sense. But is that also then kind of, as you picked up on, kind of a focus on the kind of constitutional provisions within each country? And is there also thought as to the extent to which the African Charter and the rights under the African Charter are being used by uh, lawyers and activists? Yeah, I think there's been great guidance provided by our regional human rights mechanism. There have been two or three fairly comprehensive statements on what relevant provisions of the charter mean in times like this. Everything from, you know, expression, association, right to vote, to more difficult questions like water, healthcare, and so on. Um, so that guidance has come from the African Commission and definitely has been picked up by human rights movements to anchor their demands. Um, and not just by human rights movements, but by policy um, sort of think tank types in terms of this is what is required to constrain um, excessive government action in times like this. And if, as you know, there's also been great guidance provided by different special mechanisms of the UN. Um, Ted, there were 10 principles released the day before yesterday from the Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression and Association. 
And, you know, I'm privy to a lot of the sort of listservs, WhatsApp groups, communities of practice, and they're circulating and being picked up and referenced um, in a lot of the domestic responses. Matani, you mentioned um, uh, parliaments and in terms of the constitutional checks and balances generally on the tendency for executives to uh, consolidate their power in these sorts of emergencies. How are parliaments doing generally in Africa? In the UK, our parliament hasn't sat for the last three weeks and uh, we're getting rather anxious about um, how it's going to uh, do things digitally uh, when it returns next week. I'm just wondering what's the situation broadly across Africa? Well, I mean, as you can imagine, not most African parliaments are not set up to function remotely. Um, there are some provisions that are being discussed around how do you maintain social distancing if parliaments recalled. They need to be recalled because they need to pass some of uh, um, the measures around tax, around budgets, um, massive bu budget allocations, around yeah, general economic relief measures. Um, so that's an ongoing debate. I mean, obviously, South Africa, countries like Mauritius are further ahead than um, the rest of us, but those are active debates. What's the, what's the concerns, and I'm, I'm sure this varies obviously from country to country, but uh, uh, about the risk of authoritarian regimes using this crisis as an opportunity to power grab well, I mean, that's obviously a concern in a country like Kenya. Um, and then it's obviously a concern in a country like Ethiopia, where even though they're, you know, Ethiopia's transitional, people have such clear memories um, of more authoritarian past. Um, yeah, that is a concern. And that's why there's been this rash of, of sort of litigation to bring in limits, checks and balances where, where they can. Um, I think in other countries, though, the problem is the authoritarians are basically missing in action. Um, Cameroon, there's a whole, you know, huge debate among Anglophone, Francophone Cameroonians on where is our president who's been totally MIA throughout the period. Um, same in Nigeria, Buhari's been completely absent. And there was a whole rumor, you know, his chief of aid test, uh, chief of one of his aides tested positive and is he sicker than he was? Um, so actually, in some countries, they're MIA. In Guinea, uh, the concern was they went ahead with um, the referendum and the election regardless. And there, Guineans are really concerned that, yes, all the COVID restrictions on bans on travel, etc., are essentially to shelter Conde from any kind of response from the region um, around his attempt to go for a third term. Then looking to the long term, what are your concerns about the long term impact that this whole COVID crisis is going to have? I mean, not only in Kenya, but again, across the continent. Well, there's the there's the immediate and the first is sort of loss of life, right? Um, we don't know how this will play out really in Africa. Africans gov governments did act fast. Um, but will these measures work, given the kind, what I've just described, the majority of us being informal, living in informal settlements, etc.? Um, there are lots of questions. Um, relative to Europe, we have a very young population. Will that shield people from some effects? There's unproven science around, will temperature matter? Um, so we don't really know. Um, 
what we do know for sure, but that's the first concern is, is if this really takes hold within the population, massive loss of life. But the longer, more midterm problem is economic. Um, we're looking at, you know, shutdowns of, you know, food supply for the majority of people. Um, we're looking already, you know, many of us make our money from tourism, from exports of cash crops. Um, those industries will be horticulture. Those industries are already devastated just by lack of worker, worker force. Um, many African countries were on the verge of a new sovereign debt crisis, not just to, you know, the usual suspect name, China, um, but to many European commercial banks, um, to commercial lenders. Um, Kenya, for instance, was widely expected to go into a sovereign debt crisis. Many Southern African countries as well, a few West African ones. So the economic impacts of this are going to be huge. South Africa slid into recession. Um, it's been downgraded. Um, so at the AU level, um, you know, they've done an economic analysis. They've put together a sort of task force of senior Africans to help lobby around the measures that are needed to help us with recovery after. Um, but that's going to be the real problem. And absence of kind of an international coordinated response to that problem. I mean, do you see the, this might be just a self-answering question, but the implications for that being more acute really in Africa um, and some of the African nations than anywhere else? Well, I mean, I think it's been quite extraordinary and astonishing that Cyril Ramaphosa, who's currently the AU chair, um, all African leaders have maintained weekly meetings of the Bureau um, they've, they're coordinating their responses. They're working with the African CDC on the public health side. Um, so at the level of multilateralism within the region, I would say this has been a moment where we've risen to the occasion. But as you know, at the global level, I mean, the attacks on the WHO, I mean, there's, it's been impossible to get the UN Security Council to convene. There are like three resolutions floating around, none of which are going to get through for one political region or reason or another. The EU is preoccupied. I mean, how long did it take the EU to respond to its neighborhood, let alone its multilateral obligations outside of Europe? I mean, that is one of the, the huge long-term impacts that I think we'll all see is, is what is this telling us about, you mentioned the post-45 institutions, they're, they're proving to be, you know, only as strong as their member states are, their strong member states, and right now those member states are busy saving their own bacon. And even turning on how thick a skin has any individual particular leader got? Yeah, I mean, then you have a Trump in the middle of all of this. I mean, it's just outrageous um, what he's done. I mean, you look at American behavior. It's not just states raiding one another for protective equipment. I mean, how do you stop a, a, a transport of protective equipment to a country like Barbados or Paraguay? I mean, it's, it's astonishing at a time when multilateralism is needed and coordination sort of where our equipment where is equipment needed now? Where are testing needed now? How do we share this rationally according to needs? Those are only things that can be globally coordinated. 
and you attack the only institution that's capable of, of, of doing that. And that those, those who suffer tend not to be the privileged. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Can I ask you just for a kind of a long view take from your perspective as to looking at the reactions of Europe and the United States and other developed nations? Um, and I, I just, we've had an unparalleled response to shutting down economies. And it has been mainly for obviously an extremely serious threat, but one that is going to ultimately in those countries probably not kill an enormous amount of people. And it's going to be mainly a a crisis out of concerns that people don't get access to absolutely top of the range medical equipment such as ventilators. One of the things I've been just toying with is how history is going to look at that response in the context of every year Half a million children die of diarrhoea. Hundreds of thousands of children die of malaria. And the reaction of countries who haven't been directly affected of that has been pretty negligible. But I'm just increasingly wondering how history is going to judge the rea- our reaction to all of this. And I wonder how that will, that, how that will look. I mean, certainly within even my own organization, I mean, my Asian colleagues are outraged because, you know, they felt they lived with this. They were right there at the start of it. Our office is in Singapore. We have people in South Korea. And they just got on with it. They followed their government advice. No one really bothered. It was only when it sort of hit Europe, hit New York, that everyone's like, oh, my God, it's a global crisis. Um so there, there is that dynamic to it, but that's not to lessen the fact that for people who are experiencing this for the first time, um, for people who have had an expectation that life will treat them kindly, even though, you know, the, the world wars are not that far behind us, um, you can maybe understand the shock. I mean, some of the scenes from Italy and hospitals health workers in Italy and Spain. I mean, they're, they're horrendous. And for a generation of people that didn't expect it, maybe yeah. you can understand. But how long can that last? We also live in an interconnected world, right? They should be aware of the rest of the world. They should be aware of their obligations and participation in the rest of the world. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> you look at the fact, even here in the UK, the first doctor that died was a Sudanese doctor, a Sudanese surgeon, and, you know, in all this sort of Thursday clapping for the healthcare system, do people realize their healthcare system has been subsidized by, you know, the import of human resources from the global south? Um, well, I was reduced to tears yesterday by um, a poem read by workers in the healthcare system and all critical workers from all over the world working in, in London. And I, I don't. I'm not sure how many people will either take that on board now or certainly how much they'll remember it six months in six months' time. Mathoni, thank you so much uh, for joining us. You know, I think I pre-warned you that no matter how heavy the subject matter of our discussion, and hard to think it could have been heavier, we're still not going to let you go without um, a moment's frivolity. And um, it's to ask you for your recommendation for people who do have some time during the lockdown, what, what, what's the book that you would recommend people read? So I have two. 
Um, one is I try and keep up with sort of who's writing from Africa. And one of these was a writer who was longlisted or shortlisted for the Booker last year. So Chigozi Obiama, an orchestra of minorities about a Nigerian who makes, you know, that desperate trek to get out of Africa, land in Europe. And it's just, it's pretty heartbreaking um, with some very funny moments. So that's worth reading. Um, and then the other one I read was Isabel Allende's new book, um, A Long Petal by the Sea or Of the Sea. And that was just fascinating. I didn't realize that, you know, Neruda had organized this exodus of Spaniards from the war to Chile and escaping Franco, and then they had to escape Pinochet later. It's quite, it's quite something. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, Tony, thank you so much for joining us. And when you do manage to uh, get a plane to Nairobi, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> Joining us now is Colin Gonzalez, one of India's most well-known human rights lawyers. Colin is senior advocate of the Supreme Court of India and founder of the Human Rights Law Network, the country's leading public interest law group, whose work across a range of subjects has benefited countless individuals from the poorest and most marginalised communities, not least his celebrated right to food litigation, which established an obligation on the state to provide food security schemes and cases in which the right to health was given constitutional protection Colin, thank you so much for joining us. Could I start, rather than asking about law, just to ask about what the public health response has been in India and across the states in India um, in respect of um, the extent of the crisis and the measures that are in place to deal with it? Well, I suppose you would expect that in a country like India with uh, 1.3 billion people, and with about maybe 800 million people below the poverty line today, I would say, of a dollar a day. 800 million people. With the public hospitals crumbling, with the public education crumbling, you could imagine that it's total chaos in the country today. And there's no right to health at all anymore. It's all crumbled. The whole edifice of human rights has crumbled. People don't have food, there's starvation that's taking place because millions of workers have lost their jobs and thrown out on the streets. The hospitals are closing and only dealing with COVID cases. So if you have a serious ailment outside COVID, the hospitals are all closed. People have no money to pay for medical attention and the government doesn't care. That's the most important point. The government doesn't care if the poor live or die. So the medical emergency is of a sort we have not seen. And we are used to seeing a lot of medical deprivation in this country, medical treatment and deprivation. But uh, we've not seen the kind of total disdain that a person can die and the government doesn't care for a long, long time. I mean, in this country, we've got we not only health care, but we've, we've also been given a, a, a whole set of rules that range from not coming within two metres of somebody other than your immediate family to constantly washing your hands with soap. Um, what do what, what measures 
can be possibly realistic if, for example, you're living in a, a, the slums in Mumbai or into <laughs> what does that mean? Those sorts of measures mean if you're living in a slum in terms of space, in terms of access to sanitation, to healthcare, etc. Well, to give you an idea, Delhi would have about 20 million people. And out of 20, half of them or 10 million would be residing in slums, which are very dense populations. Notwithstanding that, people are still trying to stay indoors and not have the usual shoulder-to-shoulder contact that they have all the time. But it means that social distancing is not possible really uh, in many parts of India. In the rural areas, perhaps, but certainly not in the big cities of India. You can't, just can't have that. But there are measures that can be taken, which uh, it's not that social distancing is the, is the only real measure. For a country like India, and I suspect for many backward countries, the, the better measures would be to ensure hygiene and cleanliness everywhere. Clean the gutters, clean the drains you know, sweep the streets, which is something we also don't have uh, much. I feel general hygiene and give people clean water and so on would uh, perhaps serve the purpose better. There's an overwhelming emphasis on social distancing and it turned out to be farcical. For example, in Delhi, because people had no food, the moment they announced the lockdown, they they realized that they had their jobs had gone, so they turned out into the streets. They had no food to eat. And so they all decided to walk home, which India means 700, 800 kilometers. Well, it was the biggest migration, urban migration since partition, wasn't it? Possibly. Possibly. And the same happened in Bombay three days ago, where tens and thousands of workers turned out. The moment the lockdown was extended, they just turned down and were ready to walk home. 700 kilometers and people died walking home. People died of starvation on the way. And there were quite pathetic pictures of men, women and children walking home. Colin, I just wanted to to clarify what uh, the position is in India in terms of the mechanisms, the legal mechanisms by which the measures have been put in place, the public health measures um, that people are required to comply with. Um, Secondly, how those measures are being enforced. And and thirdly, what those measures are, because the, the indications that you've given so far is that what is happening in India is pretty much the same in terms of the public health steps that the the population is required to take as are being applied in Europe in the very, very different context where we don't have people living in hugely overcrowded slums in vast numbers. Um, And I just wanted to clarify whether or not the measures really are simply duplicating what is happening in the West. Well, the measures are introduced by way of government orders not by way of statute, but by way of government orders. And under our penal code, it is uh, an offence, a criminal offence, to not obey a government order. So that's the way they do it. It's a very simple and quick way. And every day you get a series of uh, government orders notified and you're expected to follow them.
So, so how how does the notification process take place? Uh, is there a real risk that people are simply not going to know what they're being required to do? Well, I'd say if I give you a ballpark figure, something like ninety percent of all people will not know what order has been made. It's put up on a website of the government of India, the Ministry of Home Affairs, and even lawyers would come to know of these orders. Uh, maybe a week or two weeks later. So it's a very quick way for the government to act. It's a very oppressive way for the government to act because as soon as the order is made, the police can act on those orders, whether you know of those orders or not. And there is uh, said to be a presumption that the public is supposed to know what the law is. But that presumption, I think, is overstated in many ways. How is it enforced? It's like, it's like uh, a military regime enforcing a curfew during a period of civil strife. <clears throat> and the term used in India is curfew, where people are warring among themselves, so to speak, and you take out your guns and you take out your uh, you know, gases, <laughs> masks and so on, and you attack people. So that's what, that's what the police is trained in, you know, treating it like a, a civil disobedience kind of movement. It's militarily enforced with very brutal measures, with violence against common people everywhere. Is there any parliamentary scrutiny of the executive orders or is parliament um, just not in featuring at all at the moment? Well, parliament does have mechanisms to look at uh, uh, orders made by government particularly controversial orders that trespass on human rights, government has a right and parliament has a right to check that. But parliament has shown no spine at all. And parliamentarians are in panic mode. So they are very worried about them getting the coronavirus. So there's no oversight by government at all. Generally, you can say that the opposition parties have taken the view, like our judiciary has broadly taken a kind of uh, unstated stand that this is a national calamity, this is a national crisis, and we all need to stand with the government on whatever it does, no matter what. We won't question the government today. We may look at it tomorrow, but by tomorrow, people will be dead. Colin, I want to ask you, if I may, two aspects about that. I mean, we've been talking this week and last week with human rights lawyers in a range of countries who have real concerns about their authoritarian regimes using the crisis as cover for a power grab. Now, I just want to ask you about two aspects in respect of the BJP and Modi in India. I mean, firstly, there has been obviously a great deal of concern about the BJP generally taking a more authoritarian role, greater centralisation, less democratic. And I'd be interested in your views as to whether or not there's been concerns emerging about the use of the crisis. But the, obviously the other very serious concern, both domestically in India and internationally in respect of the BJP and Modi, is anti-Muslim sentiment. Uh, and I'm interested, again, to the degree to which either the government or the party or its supporters have been using COVID to uh, whip up anti-Muslim sentiment. Well, let's start with the last part first, the anti-movement sentiment. 
you know that there was uh, a national resistance against a statute which was brought in to identify 500,000 Muslims as foreigners and on that identification being done to put them in detention centers in different parts of the country. It was an extraordinary movement of young people particularly who took to the streets all across the country and our country has never seen such vibrancy and youth a new group of people coming in, so to speak, from the earlier generation of political leaders and protesting against the government. The first thing that this virus uh, measures, so to speak, of government had was that all these demonstrations were broken up immediately. So there were tents on the road and people would stay in the tents right through the day and the nights and they were smashed. So the first thing is to stop the movement completely and you could say that the movement against that statute which is the citizenship amendment act is over and people are not going to come on the streets for many many months maybe years to come that's one the second is what were the repressive measures that came in along with these so-called remedies to control the virus the main law officers of the government, the Solicitor General particularly, made a series of statements saying that this is not the time for us to allow criticism of the government. We should not allow anyone to criticize the government. The court should not ent entertain any criticism. And please direct the, the media not to report anything until it is cleared by government. Now, the court said we are not, we're certainly not going to get into that. We're certainly not going to stop this reporting or counter-reporting contrary to the government's view. But it was said by the court in a sort of a very mild manner. Government didn't get its way, but the court was also not very firm in dealing with this view. Recently, after we filed a series of cases, I and as many of my colleagues filed a series of public interest cases. It's a, it's a kind of a Indian version of class action petition, which is very cheap and very quick. Well, we filed, we filed five cases in the Supreme Court, several in the high courts, and many of my colleagues filed a lot of cases containing detailed information about the violation of human rights. And the Solicitor General said, and he presses it every time we stand up to argue in court that these PIL factories, public interest litigation factories, ought to be closed down. And so he carries out a very active campaign against us in and outside the court. And we also write in the papers a lot about his views on uh, control of uh, freedom of speech and expression. Are you at the moment... Um content with the ability of the courts, A, to give you access during the, this public health emergency, and B, to uphold fundamental rights? Well, the Supreme Court today is just a shadow of its former self. Our Supreme Court was a very vigorous Supreme Court, very tenacious, very courageous, very innovative, and very uh, inclined to take the government to court. 
But today we have a very docile court, a very mild court, a court that believes that, well, it should back the government in almost everything that it does. This is not uniform. There are judges who stand up to the government. But today we are seeing a very different situation where the courts are not as inclined to take on the government as they were once upon a time. So generally I would say that those litigating on human rights are very, very disappointed. Can I ask you about another aspect of rights, which you've already touched on, Colin, which is the rights that come from poverty, um, from starvation, and from complete lack of access to any form of health care. You've been pioneering in terms of establishing a right to food through the right to life provisions and also a right to health care through right to life provisions. Do you, do you see those playing an important role going forward, dealing with the consequences of this crisis? Well, if the entire structure of economic rights has disintegrated and has become meaningless, and if starvation death is taken as the norm, that men, women and children will starve, so that a sort of a pre-British kind of spread of hunger throughout the country emerges again in India. And if government at all levels and all political parties say, well, that's, that's what India is all about. If you die, you die. If you don't get medicines, you don't get medicine. So if economic rights, that structure has disintegrated overnight, but it was a disintegration in the happening for many, many years. It was, it was sort of on the cards. Then I think the whole structures that we built as lawyers and judges did when they made orders on the right to food and the right to health care, all that has gone. So now there's no intermediate way. There will, there will be either insurrection and revolution or there will be deaths on the streets. We've come to an extreme where democracy has, in fact, become so fragile that it's uh, disintegrating and going. And what role for human rights lawyers? Well, human rights lawyers will have to become, will have to approximate to human rights activists in the sense that now the man in the court or the woman in the court and the woman on the street will probably be the same person. And we will need to be agitators, educators, as much as we are lawyers making submissions in court. Mobilizing people will need to be the, the, the kind of things that we should do as part of our role as a lawyer, the organizer, the agitator. But I don't see that happening really because our legal profession is also very fragmented and plays very little role in progress in India. So our judiciary is dying. Our lawyers are broadly mainstream. They will go wherever money and power exist. And our generation of lawyers are becoming older and older. And the newer generation of lawyers, we hope, will come up. But we'll have to see once the dust settles. Let's hope, let's hope this crisis, if nothing else, galvanizes the younger generation to realizing the need for international cooperation to stand together to ensure people have basic rights, whether it's civil liberties or the right to food and the right to healthcare.
And Colin, you, you played such a critical role in that struggle um, in a country which has been absolutely at the crucible of those of those rights. So thank you so much for for joining us. I'm not going to I'm not going to let you go without a moment of frivolity because I've warned you, you've got to have to recommend a book. Um, and it sounds almost improper after discussing themes as profound as the ones you've been talking to, to talk about these matters. But I always think in human rights, you've got to have be able to smile even at the worst times and to extract some joy and happiness. So I'm going to ask you for your book recommendation, if you wouldn't mind. Well, I'll give you a book, which is an unusual sort of a book. It's called Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Well, it's a, it's a wonderful choice. It was one of my, te- one of my, one of my favourites growing up. That and, that and the glass bead game also. It's wonderful. That's a wonderful recommendation, Colin. Thank you. Thank you so very much for joining us. So, um, two, I mean, very humbling uh, interviews uh, by people facing the most enormous challenges. Just after we finished recording with Colin, I think we carried on chatting and Murray, you asked him a question that I wish we had recorded, which was whether there was any grounds for optimism. And partly what Colin said, again, sadly, not on the, won't be on the pod, but was, was a little uplifting. Perhaps you can say what the answer to your question was. Yes, I think he was, he was, uh, he was very pessimistic about the ability of the international community to make much difference, certainly to India. Uh, because I think he feels that the Indian government is fairly impervious to international opinion. So I think as far as he was concerned, looking at it from an Indian perspective, that's a sort of closed space, really, um, for the time being. Uh, but he was at least much more optimistic, I think, about the potential for younger people, younger generations to engage with these questions uh, and possibly using harnessing digital technology to develop new social movements in a way which will, over time, um, bring a, a, a much more politically aware generation to, to grapple with these issues. So it was a long-term optimism, but there was at least a bit of optimism there. So, Philippa, in terms of what Mathoni was saying, one of the things I found striking was that legally they seem way, a, way ahead of us in terms of thinking through challenges and bringing challenges uh, before the courts. might be because they've been facing more obvious uh, um, human rights abuses, but I thought it was it was striking how far ahead they were. Yeah, I, I thought so too. Very, very striking. I think I, I do think they, from what she was saying, they are they are facing um, slightly more extreme rule of law challenges, and that's what she described as the focus of the challenges that have been brought thus far. But it just does seem that there's an awful lot more coordination um, amongst human rights lawyers across nations. Um, as well as coordination of governments in terms of the response. Yes, I think that's right. I think it's very interesting the way Mathani described the intergovernmental response of the African Union and how positive that's been. Probably uh, in the wake of the Ebola crisis, they were much more prepared. Um, But I think, again, it brings us full circle really to our opening discussion about the importance of uh, multilateral institutions and internationalism. But of course, she also did uh, quite rightly, I think, point out that that doesn't extend to the global level. Whilst it may be happening at the African level regionally, uh, there is still this lack of global leadership 
um, and we're really all crying out really for the big international organizations and the big players in the international system to show that leadership to try and come together and lead some sort of coordinated but a response and what seems absolutely apparent is a failure to do so is going to lead to the worst consequences for the most vulnerable yeah as ever and that takes us to a discussion we're going to be having next week when we turn to look at how the covid emergency is amplifying existing inequalities in this country we're going to discuss how that plays out in terms of poverty in terms of race and in terms of gender and we're going to be helped when we do so by discussions with uh, Aqua Hirsch of The Guardian and Martha Spurier of Liberty. But until next week, thanks for listening.